Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Purpose Tune Podcast. The goal of my show is to create valuable content to broaden your knowledge, inspire you, and get you in the right mindset so that you can apply it in your own life to drive impact, generate meaning, and achieve your purpose. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Purpose Tune Podcast. My name is Kong Chung, and I am the host of this podcast. Of course, the goal of the show is to create valuable content to broaden your knowledge, inspire you to act and get you in the right mindset so you can apply it in your own life to drive impact, generate meaning, and achieve your purpose. I'm very excited about today's episode's guest. His name is Dr. James O. Rogers, author, speaker, executive coach, and spiritual teacher. He has practiced uh, in coach business executives in the areas of diversity management as an enterprise performance discipline for over 35 years. He is recognized by his colleagues as one of the leading strategists and the number one thought leader in the field of diversity management. And he is known as the diversity coach. Dr. Rogers has been a behind the scenes advisor to leaders in over 300 major enterprises, including Coca-Cola Company, Georgia Power, Bell South, which is now AT&T, and not-for-profits, including YMCA of Metro Atlanta and the High Museum of Art. Internationally, Dr. Rogers has been a trusted advisor for global brands such as uh, Johnson & Johnson, IBM, and Chevron Texaco. Um, and his work has been quoted on major media outlets like the New York Times, Financial Times of London, and uh, Chicago Tribune, as well as Wall Street Journal. Dr. Uh, Rogers, I guess, James, if I, if I may call you, um, let's check in. How are you today? I'm doing fabulous, Kong, and it's a delight to be with you today. Looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you so oh, much for... I almost feel like asking, do you want a cup of coffee or something? You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if this was in person, we would. And I would definitely buy you a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. Um, I obviously have a passion for diversity, equity, inclusion. And, um, you know, considering you're, you're in the space, um, you know, I'm just so excited about you know, what we'll be um, uh, discussing about. Um, I, I want to ask you, what's your take on the current DEI landscape uh, as it stands in America? Well, I think I mentioned to you before when we had coffee that um, I'm a little concerned about the field. And the reason is uh, something I call excess complexity. Uh, anyone who's outside of the field of diversity and inclusion is really confused about what it is. And therefore, that just leaves room for a lot of people with uh, agendas other than what you and I are, are concerned about to put their uh, issue underneath the banner of diversity and inclusion. Uh, one of the things that I'm suggesting to people is your issue is not wrong. I'm not against your issue, but I think it's problematic for you to put it under the banner of diversity and inclusion if it's really not diversity and inclusion. So I have been involved in DNI from the beginning. Dr. Roosevelt Thomas put it on the landscape of business. It was originally called Workplace Diversity. Uh, he had a, a brand of it called Managing Diversity. 
one of his Harvard colleagues, uh, Dr. Jeff Howard, came along and introduced the word inclusion to the uh, to the lexicon. And for probably seven or eight years, we were really making progress. All the leaders of the major corporations said, this is what we've been looking for. This is an issue. The workplace is changing. The makeup of the workplace is changing. We need some tools and some disciplines to help us to navigate this new field of employee and, and marketplace uh, forces. And we were making progress. We came up with great training. We came up with a great context. And then people start piling on. Once they saw that it was popular and that uh, the people with money were supporting it, that's major corporations, uh, civil rights people, uh, social activists, uh, everybody piled in under the name diversity and inclusion. Now, again, I want to emphasize, I think those are worthwhile things to do. But if you're working on racial equality, let's do something radical like call it racial equality. That way it re removes the confusion about what you're working on. People are clear. If I'm supporting you, I'm supporting the idea of racial equality or gender equity or minority rights or gay and lesbian rights or the, the disability community. Let me be clear about what I'm supporting. But when you put it under this generic label of diversity and inclusion, and one of my colleagues says people do that just to gain instant credibility. So when you do that, you introduce excessive complexity. Complexity produces confusion. The confused mind does not act. So we've lost a lot of the momentum simply because people who would otherwise support it don't know what to do because they're confused about what it is. So that's why I'm concerned about it. And that's the reason that I wrote the new book, uh, Diversity Training That Generates Real Change. And, uh, and I'm now speaking and writing uh, about this topic uh, quite a bit. Just recently wrote an article in Leader to Leader uh, Journal called Who Should uh, Lead Diversity Efforts? Not Who You Think. And it really kind of takes us very quickly back through the uh, history that I just shared with you. And it, it tells that if you look at the makeup, especially in large corporations, of the Office of Diversity, there's a very suspicious look to it. They're all black and brown-skinned people, a lot of females. What you don't see there is the mix of people that really exist, which, by the way, includes able-bodied, non-Hispanic, heterosexual white men. They don't show up there. And when they don't show up there, we basically signals this is not for everybody. This is targeted for specific individuals. And what I said in an article back in 1996, if we ever approach the work without being inclusive, we, you know, you can't call yourself working on inclusion when you're deliberately excluding a, a portion of the population. So unless we continue, unless we work out a way to be totally inclusive, this will never work and we will never make the progress that we should in terms of creating the workplace, the individual, the business outcomes, and the societies that I think we all aspire to. So mm -hmm. that's really the source of my concern. And that's what I'm speaking about nowadays. That's what the book is intended to do. That's what I'm writing about. And as an old preacher friend of mine says, I know I'm right about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So 
a lot of great points you just shared, and I want to dive a little deeper into that. But before we go there, um, how did you start in this work? Like, what inspired you? It's it's kind of a strange story, and I tell people all the time, I'm an anomaly in the diversity and inclusion field. I'm an engineer by training, a former corporate executive, PNL. Uh, you know, business operations. I'm an MBA. My uh, PhD is in is in management. So my focus has really not been down the human resources or, or personal development uh, track. I have been about business enterprise performance. And so when I got into the movement, um, I was working on some other things. I had left the corporation and started my own consulting uh, company was working, doing good work in uh, total quality management, Six Sigma, all that good stuff, like a good engineer is supposed to. And then I ran into, or I reconnected with Dr. Roosevelt Thomas and uh, spent some time with him understanding the fundamentals of the work that he was proposing. And I got hooked on it. Uh, The one way you get hooked on something, by the way, when you're a consultant, is someone hires you to do it. You know, (laughs) Uh, about, uh, I think, early about in the in the late 80s, right after I had started my consulting practice, a friend of mine called me and he said, his name was Bob. Bob said, Jim, I just got an opportunity to bid on this contract for this big insurance company up in the Northeast, and they want us to do something they're calling diversity. Uh, I said, Bob, what is that? He said, we'll, we'll figure it out, because he's an experienced management consultant. So long story short, we bid on it. We got the deal. Two weeks into the deal, Bob calls me up and says, Jim, this really feels more like you than me. So you got it. <laughs> so here I was, <laughs> dumped into the middle of this huge project with this title, Diversity, and I had to figure out, what am I going to do with this? But fortunately, to me, it was a enterprise performance issue. So basically, with this insurance company, with their field salespeople, I talked to them about leaving money on the table. Who is it that you're not selling to because you've gotten conditioned to believe they're not a target audience? Who is it that you're not serving because somehow you've been conditioned conditioned to think that that's not going to be a successful proposition? Immediately after that, by one year, two years after I started that project, I got a call from a public utility uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. I got called from one up in uh, Rochester, New York. Somehow the word spread. And and I'll tell you, Mong Kong, I've never uh, done any traditional marketing, but the word just spread. And before you know it, I had built a consulting practice around this whole idea of DNI. And so I, I figured I, I better know what I'm doing. So I spent about a year and a half just developing my own voice in the space but it's primarily based on the work of Dr. Roosevelt Thomas, who we lost, unfortunately, several years ago. And he is the father of this uh, of this movement. And uh, I tell people all the time when I'm speaking, so they ask, why do you talk about Roosevelt so much? I said, not because he was my friend and my mentor, but because he was right. He was right. Mm-hmm. And the more I look at his work, uh, his writings and the things that he talked about, I am more convinced than ever that he had the right formula to get us all on the same track, not us versus them, 
but all of us as human beings on the same track to produce businesses and societies that would benefit us all. What do you say to people who say, well, I don't, I don't think like you do mm -hmm. when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion? I said, you know, I'm a Southerner, Kong, so you have to, you have to excuse this. I say, well, bless your heart. You know, what you're doing, <clears throat> like I said, I support what you're doing. Don't call it diversity and inclusion. That creates confusion. So if you are advocating for uh, things that are related to a specific dimension of diversity, uh, like now I have a lot of gay and lesbian friends and they'd say, I don't want to give up that, including that under this banner of diversity and inclusion because people will lose sight of it if we don't. So no, they're not. Your cause is right. Call it gay and lesbian issues. Call it rights. Tell people this is what I want. I want full representation and full freedom in the society that we live in. Work on that. You'll get an audience and you'll make uh, you'll make progress. If you call it diversity and inclusion, you've introduced a level of confusion that now even diminishes your work. It certainly diminishes the work that I'm doing, but it diminishes your work also and slows it down simply because we are not crisp in our language. We are not precise in what we tell people we're working on and why it makes sense. So when we get to it later on in this conversation, I'll tell you where I've arrived on DNI and why it's starting to resonate with so people because it's simple, crisp, straightforward, and logical. And the engineer in me really that that uh, that works for me. Right. Yeah, well, the other, the other thing, uh, if, if I may, the other thing is, um, I think it's important for people to understand that historic wrongs don't equal current wrongs. So from a political standpoint, and I try to stay out of the political uh, dialogue, but I do see an opportunity here for us to create a better political climate if we were to approach it from the standpoint of we are all in this together, we are all in this together. There is no us versus them. There's only us. Us includes all of us. And I want to embrace uh, everyone's cause and I want to hear everyone's story. That's one of the things that we talked about in the book is that we want to hear everyone's story. The minute we tell white men you got to listen to us because always oh, it's been so hard for us. And then they say, well, yeah, let me tell you about my story. You don't have a story. And we shut them down. That is the end of the movement. We mm -hmm. have got to be open to say, please listen to me. I've got some pain. And mm -hmm. then my white brothers will say, I hear you. I feel you. And now let me tell you about my pain. Because as human beings, Kong, you know, every human being has some stuff in their life. Right. No matter how privileged they may look. That's one of the latest articles that I've written is the, the myth of privilege, that we all have pain. My, my co-author calls it the meritocracy of pain. Mm -hmm. Everybody has some stuff in their life. And we have to be honest enough to say, let me hear your story. And mm -hmm. I want you to hear my story. Now let us work together so both of us have less suffering. That's a Buddhist concept, is mm -hmm. that we're not only to release our own suffering, but we are to participate in lowering the suffering of others. So mm -hmm. we can only do that if we are willing to hear everybody. 
Right. Well, that's, first of all, that's very important. And one of the reasons why I decided to launch this podcast is because I want us to see our shared humanity. Now, the challenge with that is that not everybody will have the ability to empathize or have compassion. How do you work with individuals that don't have those abilities? Whereas they have always seen it as a world of, of us versus them. And that's how they see the world. There's no way to change them. Well, I, uh, I'm not 100% with you on that premise. Because I've worked with in the classroom, well, I've worked in the classroom with uh, over two hundred thousand people personally, as well as running projects where we've done thousands and thousands more. And I've never run into a person who, given the right situation, the right tools, and the right environment, is not willing to move. So, people, human beings, we are incentive-driven creatures. So if you provide the right incentive for people, they will back up, rethink what they're uh, currently thinking and say, how can this other way work better for me? Remember, you got to provide them with a personal motive for wanting to change. I'm a executive coach. Executive coach is all about behavior change. Mm -hmm. So the technology, getting people to change their thinking and their habits is just part of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. So I would say there are some people who are locked in. And one thing I tell teachers, when a child is acting out, they're always acting out for a reason. Don't just punish the behavior, find out what the reason is. When our fellow citizens act out by saying, I'm right and no matter what you say, I know I'm, I'm right and I'm just sticking with my position, they're acting out for a reason. Something is hurting in their life. Rather than, we, I tell people all the time, when you see that, don't denigrate, educate. Mm -hmm. And by educating, I mean invite them. Invite them through a facilitative process. Invite them to rethink where they are because it's hurting them more than it's hurting you. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I have an option. When I have an obstinate person, I have an option. Mm -hmm. I don't have to be around them. I, I just as uh, my friend Les, uh, Les Brown used to say, I just release you to your highest good and move on with my life. <laughs> but if I love you and care about you, I will spend some time and at least invite you. And if you don't accept the invitation and you choose not to change your habits and your behaviors, I've done my job. Mm -hmm. What what incentives? First of all, I, I, I enjoy all of Les Brown's motivational yeah. uh, speeches. If there's a way that you could help me make the connection to get him on my podcast, that's what I'd love that. I'd really appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> I will make a note of that. That's, that's you know, I, I, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. Um, incredible guy. I love all of his content. Um yeah. so going back to the incentives, what incentives? do you think will drive behavior change? What are some of those common ones? Yeah. The only incentive that drives human beings is what's in it for me, okay? So we can say that's selfish. Well, of course it's selfish, but I'm just as selfish as the next guy. If, if I didn't see benefit to myself and my family and people like me, I wouldn't be pushing this, but I see the advantage of it. I see that this work is about not us versus them, but the human to human connections. 
if we get to the point where we can see other human beings as first human and then some other, if you will, rather than seeing them immediately as some other and therefore being automatically, based on our old brain conditioning, automatically resisting and rejecting them, if we can get past that and see them as human and possibly someone that I need in my life, and then once we establish a relationship, those differences don't matter so much. And in fact, those differences become a source of interest rather than a barrier to relationship. So that's what I'm pushing is this idea, let's start with our collective human humanness. And you know, we, we define diversity, just a simple definition, going back to the simple again. It is the collective mix of differences and similarities. I'm changing that now. It's the collective mix of similarities and differences. For the last 30 years, we've been putting the differences out front and we focus on the differences and everybody's talking about their differences and you need to understand my differences and all of that. When we start with similarities, and I've got some great stories in the book about this, if we start with similarities, let me seek first to find out what we have in common. And if I do that, and once I have found that connection that we have in common, there's not many differences that are going to show up that's going to break this relationship because now we have a kinship. We have a reason to want to connect with each other. We have a reason to want to produce with each other. Mm -hmm. And so that's it's really just a mental shift that we have to go through. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of brain theory that supports what I'm talking about. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've tried it so many times that I know it works. Mm -hmm. Can you share with us some of those brain theories or um, like neural connections that we have and how that affects the way how we think about diversity and inclusion? See, we were blessed with this thing up here, this frontal lobe of our brain. You know, the older version of ourselves didn't have that. They had this old brain back here, and it was just like any animal's brain. It was fight or flight, survive, and and, and thrive. So when a caveman saw a saber-toothed tiger, he was equipped. Not one of my tribe. Doesn't look like my people. I got to flee. <laughs> and he looks dangerous, so I'm gone. Well, over the years, we found out by coming together as communities, all people don't represent a threat to us. And we have to be smart enough to figure out that not all people represent a threat to us. So that threat reaction, that that uh, whole brain reaction can be dampened. By the way, it's very fast. This is kind of slow. Uh, we have to override it with thinking, with logic, with uh, reason. And we have to take what I call a three-second pause any time that we're in the midst of making these decisions. Take a three-second pause and ask myself, oh, my God, what, am, what is my old brain telling me? Why am I thinking that? If I follow on that, what's going to happen? Is that really what I want to happen? No. Let me override it. Hi, how you doing? My name is Dr. Rogers. My name is Jim. Good to meet you. Tell me about yourself. Who are you from? And it's an old New Orleans phrase we have. Who are your mom and them? You know, tell me about your people. Uh, those things that we're seeking out is willing to try. What do we ask enough until we find out what do we have in common? And I do this all the time. And I was given the example recently of um, President Obama and Bruce Springsteen, who are now real buds. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and the reason they're buzzed is because in an early conversation that they were having, one of them asked the other one, why do you work so hard to be a great musician? Why do you work so hard to be a great politician? And they both concluded, I wanted to show my father that I, that I, that I could be successful. So now they've got that father bond and now there is nothing that could separate him, even though he's a blue collar kid from New Jersey and he is one of the most elite scholars and, and politicians that this country has ever produced, Harvard trained, et cetera, et cetera. There's nothing that says that they should automatically come together. But because they found that common connection, there's no differences that will come up that will separate the friendship now. That's the technology. You know, as an engineer, I think of things as technology. That's the technology that we need to infuse into this conversation so that everybody has an opportunity to win with it. The incentive is I want to win. I want people in my life and in my business and on my team that will help me win. And so that's the incentive. And if we can get people past this natural reaction to they're not one of me, therefore I'd have to be cautious or resist or reject, then we win more because we have the right people with the right tools and the right temperament and the right perspectives in our lives and on our team so that we get better outcomes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, I, I'm a, in alignment with you with regards to, um, it, you know, how we tackle challenges is, is you know, our greatest, our greatest solutions is, is dependent on whether we choose to work together or, or work as different teams. And mm -hmm. I've had my, you know, own experiences working with a variety of teams and the ones that I, you know, uh, feel I thrive with are the great ones, the ones that where everyone's, you know, collaborating, bouncing up ideas or psychological safety, um, people, they, they trust one another and they want to help each other succeed. Their wins are just as important as ours. And so um, earlier you mentioned about, um, well, first of all, you, 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 you have this term diversity management, which um, it, to me feels like it's a different way of saying diversity, equity, inclusion. Does that encompass inclusion and belonging? It includes diversity and inclusion. But see, if you look at the definition of diversity and inclusion, mm -hmm. all these other acronyms or uh, syllables that we're adding on have already been included. So mm -hmm. The, the fact that someone can say, I'm working on D, E, I, A, B, et cetera, mm -hmm. it, 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 it introduces further excessive complexity. Mm -hmm. So the definition of inclusion, inclusion includes belonging. Inclusion is developing a sense of belonging for everyone on the team. Mm -hmm. Practice of diversity management includes equity. In other words, treat people fairly. You mm -hmm. don't treat people fairly by treating them the same. You treat them fairly by treating them with equity. In other words, giving you what you need, giving Susie what she needs, giving Bob what he needs. Mm -hmm. That's good management. That's just plain old good management theory. Mm -hmm. So those things are already included. When you understand the concepts of diversity and inclusion, those things come with it. 
-hmm. But if you just look at the words and say, I'm going to make that word mean this, or I'm going to make it mean that, then those those uh, additional labels become necessary because you want to make sure they're included. Well, they're already included. Mm -hmm. And to add those additional uh, letters to it really just produces more complexity. So I'm not a big fan of that. And even though my book uses the word DEI over and over and over again, I've told the publishers and I told my uh, my co-author, I, I, I think we're contributing to the problem when we do that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, of course, with the, you know, the average American person is just filled with a lot of just information left to right. And so if we could find ways to sim simplify the process and definitions as much as we can while making sense of it would really help, um, you know, people that are just beginning to think about, you know, these types of issues. Um, yeah. And then, of course, more importantly, meeting them where they are and coaching them through the process. Yeah. Um, so, of course, with, um, you know, the overturn of Roe versus Wade and, you know, one of the Supreme Court justices having a desire to overturn uh, gay marriage, as well as, um, you know, talks about, um, you know, doing away with affirmative action. What's, I, I know you mentioned earlier, you don't want to get political, but obviously we're not in, uh, I'm not your client and you're not working, but you're in a pocket. <laughs> so uh, what's your take on all of that? Um, obviously these are important issues for voters as we're heading towards, um, you know, the, you know, the elections. Um, yeah. So do I, do I have thoughts about it? I do. Uh, one of my best friends is a lawyer, so when uh, Roe was uh, knocked down, I immediately called him and I said, Sam, tell me from a legal uh, practitioner standpoint, what does this mean? Because I'm looking at it as an average American, and I'm thinking it just means that we reignite the conversation at the state level and get some good laws on the book. See, Roe is a legal opinion. It's not even law. See, just like affirmative action, a lot of people think affirmative action is law. It's not. It's an executive order. It's an executive opinion. It is not law. And if we ever wanted the principles of affirmative action to be installed into our system for keeps, it needs to be codified in terms of legislation. Same thing is true of the right of a woman to control her own. Now, I get a little disturbed with people leading with feelings. I know how people feel about this. But, you know, Mark Twain said one time, he says, we all do no end to feeling and we mistake it for thinking. I'm encouraging people back away. Think, what can we do? What is the problem? What is the impact of the problem? Is that something that we can live with? If not, what's the solution? I'm an I'm a engineer, so I'm all about moving to solutions quickly. Move to solutions quickly. So right now on, on Roe, for instance, nobody advocates abortion. That's the problem that we have. We talk at each other that somehow people say, you afford abortion even at 40 weeks. Nobody wants abortion. But you know something? As a man, I don't get a vote on that. It ain't my body. And I'd like for there to be a, a situation, you know, as conservatives are always talking about, get the government out of my life. 
Well, get the government out of your bedroom. Get the government out of your, <laughs> out of all these other things that you seem to want to put uh, uh, constrictions on. And if we do that, if we stop and think long enough, we'll figure out there is a way to do this that is lasting, sustainable, equitable, and useful. Mm -hmm. But as long as we're screaming at each other out of our feelings, we're not going to make progress. We're just going to demonize the other, the other. This is, goes back to the same principles I'm talking about. If there's an us versus them, they are the other and they're wrong and we're right. Instead of problem solving, which means come, let us reason together. How can we all be right in a way that serves the majority of us? The third solution is uh, Stephen Covey used to talk about. Win-win, right? Win, win, win. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, definitely, you know, you know came, I used to work at Franklin Covey uh, for a time. And so I I know that uh, that solution quite well. Mm -hmm. uh, what's your what's your take on um, the power of mentorship? You mentioned earlier about mentoring. Well, I, I happen to be working with a... Um, executive academy currently that's in which each year I use about 30 mid-level executives who are looking to see whether or not they want to join the C-suite uh, and I'm teaching them what it takes to get there. The number one thing, relationships. The number one two, mentorship. If you don't have a mentor, you're not serious. Well, how do I get a mentor? You ask. Simple. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something about the human spirit. If someone basically says to you, I respect you enough to ask you to be my mentor, man, it's hard to turn that down. Mm -hmm. I'm a to it. I was I did some uh, interviews a couple of the last couple of years and out of it, some young man uh from out in Utah says, Dr. Rogers, I need some mentoring. And I said, God, I don't really have time for this. <laughs> but he says, uh, and I just got so much respect for what we talked about. I was wondering if you take some time with me. Mm -hmm. Well, we've been working together for three months now. Wow, <laughs> I can't, can't resist. So what I'm telling people is mentorship is critical. No one makes it on their own. No one knows everything. Mm -hmm. If you're inside an organization, you need someone to help you figure out the culture of the organization that is what's acceptable, what's unacceptable. And you need to understand how do you get to where you want to go? Mm -hmm. Who's going to spread your name when you're not in the room? Mm -hmm. And in the process of doing that, you're going to pick up some sponsors. You're going to say, someone says, that kid looks good. I think I want to put my name behind him when it comes to upward mobility. Mm -hmm. These are simple, logical human traits. And we make career management so hard simply because, again, we feel rather than think. When you think about it, this is the way to progress in any organization and in any, any, any society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. I certainly have my fair share of uh, incredible mentors throughout my career and uh, professional life, and um, they've done, in, they've been immensely useful, immensely useful for me, and I don't regret any of them at all. Um, yeah. fundamental in, in the direction in which I go about, you know, my studies and my my career trajectory, and 
I think it's very important that everybody should have a coach as well. And I think mm -hmm. that, you know, I think, it, you know, everyone could benefit from a personal coach. Uh, there's always eras of improvement in our lives, either in our financial lives or relationships or um, in our health. And, you know, the the goal of a coach in any of those eras is to really help you be in the best version of yourself. And, that, and that's what this, this show is really about is how can we encourage these types of conversations on a daily basis to get people um, to a place where they're better off. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, this show speaks to people that have a, a passion for self-development and want to do good in the community and make an impact. Um, and, you know, speaking of impact, what's, what's your impact in this world? Well, clarity, one of the things that I say about leadership, and, and if you're going to be a leader, even a thought leader, one of the things that you have to work diligently towards is clarity and vulnerability. So one of the things that I want to do is to bring clarity to all of this mess around diversity and inclusion so that everybody sees it the same way, so that we have a mass movement of everybody working on the same thing, seeing the possibilities the same way so that there will be more support and less resistance. The problem with now is that 40% of the country and 40% of the world is gung-ho for diversity and inclusion. But there's another 40% that's resisting it with all their might because they don't see what's in it for them. And they think that they're being made the enemy for something that they didn't personally do. And that's just not a recipe for success. I'm an OD consultant for, for many, many years. And I tell you, there are just some logical things that you have to have in place in order for a movement to be successful. Mm -hmm. And when you have as much resistance as you have support, not a good, not a good plan. Mm -hmm. So what I have tried to do with, with my latest work in terms of purpose is to celebrate the goodness of diversity and reduce the stigma of diversity. Diversity is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, I just spoke to a group of coaches a couple of weeks ago. And my conclusion in that is that we need to approach diversity from a place of joy. Mm. joy the process, the possibilities that we collectively can really come together and just be people and support each other and love each other and all of those things, which, you know, I don't know many, many human beings, no matter how jilted they are, that uh, would say, no, I don't want none of that. Yeah, of course you do. It's built into your system to want that. That's who we are as human beings. So what we have to do is invite people to a different way of approaching some of the challenges of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. It's beautiful. And of course, when you work from a place of joy, you know, that inspires a great deal of people wanting to join the platform because yeah. right like unless you know the person's a you know negative person overall and just doesn't see you know uh, how joy can serve them but i i don't mean mm -hmm. people you know like that and, and if i do i, I kind of stay away from that so. <laughs> absolutely absolutely we all have choices about who we uh, surround ourselves and who allow into our lives and mm -hmm. what we can do is be about the business of inviting people to a change in behavior and attitude. And if it's just a friend of mine said, you know, you, you don't beat against a brick wall too long. 
You give it a couple of good licks and say, hmm, this is a brick wall. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe I'll circle around in another year or so and try again. Take a couple of other whacks at it. But, you know, if it's not moving, bye. Right. Next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I the the one thing that I just keep going back at in my mind as you're talking about uh, inviting people into a room and welcoming them and finding ways to meet them where they are is that people want to be heard and people want to be seen, even people that are against your movement. Yeah. And it's so important to include them because if we're talking about inclusion, but yet we're separating certain individuals from our movement, what does that really say about the movement that we're trying to create or the type of leader that we are? And so I, you know, I've worked with a lot of DEI practitioners as colleagues and also, you know, as clients. And, you know, the one thing that that bond all of us together is our sheer humanity, sheer for a better world, sheer to to, to be better, um, improve our, our living situations, and yeah. finding ways to you know achieve the most success for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, speaking of success, what's your definition of it? Success is to me is not a destination; it's a journey. It is um, it is the process of doing something worthwhile every day. I'm successful because I get up every morning and I have the privilege of being just me. Mm-hmm. Being me is not a skill. I told someone the other day, I'm not a I'm not a, a great executive coach because I'm certified by company X or company Y. I'm a great executive coach because that's who I am. I've always been a coach even when I didn't know the, what the word was. I've always wanted to help other people to be the best version of themselves, to achieve even more than they could expect or believe that they could do, simply because I saw something in them that they don't see in themselves, and I'm willing to spend the time to remind them, this is why you're good. Mm-hmm. This is what you're good at. Do more of that. Do less of this. Work to your strengths. Don't worry about your weaknesses. Find someone to fill in those blanks. So to me, success is uh, just living a life that's doing what you were made to do. Now, I say this all the time. Your journey in life, your motivation for living early on is to find out why you're here. What What you put here to do. And when you find that thing, that one thing, do it. And you'll never work another day in, in your life. And that's really what drives me. And that's what that's how I define myself as successful. And that's what I'm inviting other people to do. So I love what you're doing, Kong, is that I, I know a little bit about your background. I love that you left some of the corporate stuff like I did. And you saw a purpose you're getting close to understanding this is why I was put here. I'm uniquely capable of having conversations like this with people and bringing clarity around those things. So I want to congratulate you and stay on track because I will guarantee you, you'll do quite well doing so. (laughs) Thank you, James. I appreciate that observation. And I think you hit on that note quite well with 
you know, people finding what their impact is and, you know, what drives them, their motivation and their purpose in life. And I just want to acknowledge your presence and also appreciate your work because it's so important for so many people in corporations trying to trying to drive change um you know throughout their organization and impacting communities in ways that you know would have a positive return uh on on their uh contribution and so this work is important it's needed uh more than ever and i know there's a lot of people looking for um guidance and expertise from um, very knowledgeable and experienced practitioners, uh, diversity management practitioners, practitioners such as yourself. So I want to acknowledge your work and thank you for all that you do to ensure that we create a world of equality, fairness, uh, justice, and for people to live uh, how they choose to live um, in a way that is with respect and dignity and with equal treatment. And uh, I know we're just uh, about to wrap up here. What uh, departing uh, advice would you give to my listeners listening to this show? As it relates to diversity and inclusion, diversity and inclusion is a relationship discipline. And the reason I reduced it down to that because that is the highest level of goals that we can set for, that all people are not distracted by differences in terms of the relationships that they have in their life. There's an old wisdom saying that says, seek ye first the highest goal and all the subordinate goals will be added to it. That was a great teacher, the Nazarene, who said that. And as I practice that, if we shoot for this being a relationship discipline, race, gender, ethnicity, uh, disabilities, ageism, all of that comes along with it. If I shoot for those things, as we've proven over the last 30 years, I'm not going to get any of that, nor will I get the relationship discipline. So to shoot for the highest goal and the rest of it will follow. You'll get all of it. So I would just invite people to rethink, not refill, rethink what they're doing in the area of diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. That's uh, well said. Thank you so much, James. And where can people find you should they choose to connect with you uh, after listening to this show? I'm on LinkedIn, but also jamesorogers.com. That's Rogers with a D, jamesorogers.com. Uh, we'll give you everything you need to know about uh, how I'm working nowadays, the media, including my books. Uh, my speaking engagements, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the things that I would invite you to 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 take a look at. And Kong, I just want to say it's been delightful talking to you. Thank you. And likewise here as well, thank you so much for contributing your knowledge and wisdom on my show, um, providing all of my mm -hmm. listeners, um, you know, the valuable information that they'll need to take with them to think about how they want to make it a greater impact in the communities that they're part of, as well as their loved ones and friends. And folks, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode, please, I encourage you to connect with James and also let him know uh, where you found 
him, which is through the Purpose Tune podcast. I hope that you'll also like this uh, episode as well as share it widely within your network. And James, thank you again. Uh, there are the books for you folks to uh, take a look at the titles, and um, I encourage you all to get a copy of it. And um, until then, James, uh, it's been wonderful connecting with you today. And again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Be blessed.